According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We're in the Kenosis passage of Philippians chapter 2. We're looking at verses uh, 5 through 11, getting ready to uh, tie this together and then move on to 12 through uh, 18 to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God of spirit, he must be worshiped in spirit and in truth in preparation for our study of the word of God this morning. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to humble ourselves under the authority of the word of God, shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for your grace and truth, thankful for uh, for a dry local church, a place where we can meet out of the rain and and uh, Father, spend our time with you, with your truth, in fellowship one with another. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, this day for our two morning sessions, for the afternoon session, for all that's done, Father, for the glory of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, open the eyes of our understanding, give us ears to hear. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as we deal with kenosis, we're dealing with some of the deepest and, and most mysterious things we ever can wrap our minds around. And in some cases, we, we, we study and then we come to a place where the Holy Spirit leads us, whereby we, we, we are content. We find ourselves to be content with the level of understanding that He blesses us with, knowing that it's not everything. <laughs> knowing that the hypostatic union, the, the kenosis, the all of the things that center on the person and work of Jesus Christ, there's going to be an infinite degree that we just fall short. We, we can't know everything. And so with the extent of what we do know, it's like Trinity. How does, th- how does three equal one? And, and, and so there's mystery involved in the sense of, of uh, many of, of, the, of these doctrines, and kenosis is one of them. And so when it says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, <clears throat> who, although he existed... In the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And so this is what we deal with, the idea of emptied himself, laid aside his privileges. Uh, you might have that in a footnote. You might have that as an alternate reading or a, a possible understanding of what the verb kanao is truly dealing with. But he, although he existed in the form of God, And this is what we're stressing, this new existence that he's going to assume in the kenosis, in the laying aside of his privileges. Emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. All right, And that's where in the Greek, uh, verse 7 actually goes all the way to being found in appearance as a man. The Greek text doesn't start at verse 8 until he humbled himself. All right, it's just a slightly different versification there between the uh, the Greek text and our English text here this morning. And so this is what we've been studying. And there's a lot of detail, and there's a lot of focus in particular when it comes to form and likeness and appearance and these uh, these expressions that either all refer to the exact same thing or quite possibly may actually refer to a progression of events. And that's something uh, we're going to speculate on here a little bit this morning. And so uh, all of this comes under main point six in the outline, the Kenosis hymn. It is a hymn, very clearly. It is uh, designed, is written probably by Paul or one of his associates in any event. Um, it does, it starts off with who, as many hymns did back then. And uh, it is a, it is an ode to the glory of, uh, of our Savior. It is an ode to the glory of, of how God uh, came to be a man and came to identify with us. And so it does provide a, a creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of, of Jesus Christ. Now, again, I've done this before. I'm going to do it again. I want to make sure we're clear on what hypostatic union means. Hypostatic union means two natures, okay? And if it helps you to think of, you know, hypocrite, okay, it's not a hypocritical thing, but a hypocrite is somebody that's two-faced, right? Well, Jesus isn't two-faced, but he does have two natures. And so uh, it's not uh, hypocrisis, it's hypostasis. And so it is the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, the fact that he stands under two natures, and, and both of them uh, uh, are eternally vested in the person of God the Son. And so we want to be clear on this. He's not two people. 
Is not God the Son and Jesus are two different people? No, it's one person. And then when he received his human nature, and that's what this passage deals with, when he received his human nature, he accepted that human nature, or he active voice Lombano took that human nature. And I think that's what we see here with the active participle of Lombano. He took the morphe dulu, the form of a bondservant. And when he did that, it's not like he let go of the morphe theu. He didn't let go of the form of God. He did not stop being God. Are we clear on that? You can't, nobody can stop. There's only one God, and he can't stop being God. Because immutability, eternal life, all of the essence of God, he is who he is and can never stop being who he is. But when he took the form that the Father begat, when he took that human nature, he then became hypostatic. He then became two-natured. Okay? And that's what we deal with. Now that's hypostatic union. Then we have a term called incarnation. All right? And some people use, use both those expressions interchangeably. They freely swap them out and use them interchangeably and so forth. And technically speaking, you can't do that. Because hypostatic union is two natures. Incarnation is the Word made flesh. Okay? And uh, if you, if you kind of keep those distinct, you'll do better. If you keep those distinct, I think you, you do yourself a, a world of favors on that basis. All right? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and so now he has a body. Now he has a, a physical existence. Right? And that's a separate question from the human nature that he receives from the Father. And if you just kind of keep those items distinct, I think you do real well. And some people struggle with that because if they cannot envision, based on our personal experience, they cannot envision a human existence without a body. All of us had our, and for us it's simultaneous. For us, we were birthed, we were conceived in our mother's womb, we, we were then birthed nine months later, and, and, and so our humanity has always had a body, at least up till today. <laughs> uh, Chuck left his body behind, right? I left his body behind. He wanted to be with the Lord. He's still human. That's the point, is that humanity is not dependent upon this body. And uh, different aspects there. So picking up where we left off then, we talk about that existence. <clears throat> it's not just being, it's existence. He is eternally God, eternally being God, existing in that form until he began a new existence, the existence in the morphe uh, dulu instead of morphe theu. And so he existed in the form of God, but did not regard equality with God a thing to a grasping thing, right? So we did dealt with all of that. But then he emptied himself, kanao. And I do like the footnote translation from the New American Standard, laid aside his privileges. I think that, that does well with the idea of empty, void, the idea with nullify that we see in, in uh, Romans, for example, and other, other ways that kanao can be translated. Uh, but the idea that he laid aside his privileges didn't stop being God, but he stopped exercising the powers and abilities and privileges and uh, attributes that God would otherwise enjoy. So he limited himself to a monopresent existence. Can you imagine? Right? He walked this earth in his flesh. He walked this earth one place at one time. And think about how tempting that is when, you know, I, w I would love to be two places at one time or three places at one time. How about that? I could be at home looking after my dad. I could be here preaching and I could be on a beach somewhere in the Philippines or something, right? You know, so you think about just, just, just that alone, not exercising the omnipresence that he, you know, eternally has. But he doesn't actively exercise the sovereignty. He doesn't actively exercise the omniscience, the omnipresence, the omnipotence, or any of those attributes. They still exist, but he is not actively engaged in them, employing them, ever, since that, uh, that uh, kenosis event, right? So, that's what we deal with there. If you have a definition of kenosis that violates immutability or that violates deity or that somehow thinks that he stopped being God, then you've got a flawed definition of kenosis. That's not what kenao is because God cannot stop being God. And uh, we want to be clear on that. All right. Now, 
As far as whatever other understanding we have for emptying, the verb is connected with three participles, and that's what we've spent the last week or two dealing with, is um, taking, being made, and being found. All right? Taking, being made, and being found. And so this verb is followed by three participles. They're all aorist participles, just like the verb itself was an aorist. The kanao uh, verb is an aorist tense. Okay, and so that the, that kanoso that kanao event was a one-time punctiliar event. That kenosis, that kanao activity, was once and once only. And I think that's significant. That helps us to answer this puzzle I'm presenting for you here this morning. Because you could think of this in two different ways. I'm gonna I've shown you one already. I'm gonna show you the alternative this morning, but I don't really hold to that. Nevertheless, grammatically, it's it's possible. So I want to lay it out there. The aorist active verb for emptying is followed by an aorist active, aorist middle, and aorist passive participle. We got three participles connected to that verb. So that these participles are describing what happened when he emptied himself. They're defining what happened. They're, they're giving us the, the additional information on the event. So uh, as we see it here, he took, that's active voice. He was uh, being made, that's the uh, middle voice where he both did it and experienced it. And then he was found. That's passive voice. He didn't do that one. Other people did that one. Um, other people found him. Other people observed him. Other people uh, discovered him, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. So the, that's the nature of this passive participle. He was found in appearance, in schematic, as a man. And that's uh, centering on the experience in the first advent incarnation. Anyway, I believe all three expressions celebrate how the word became flesh, that all three of these are synonymous expressions for that kanao moment when he emptied himself. So um, I'm going to go through these other subpoints because we taught them already about morphe, homoioma, and schema. And then my conclusion, okay, and I think this is the most likely way to handle it, all three participles are equivalent statements. So all three are simultaneous with that main verb, okay? And yet, it's not 100% certainty because aorist participles do precede the action of the main verb. And since the, these are aorist participles, then perhaps I took all three of them in a sequence for the kenosis to, to be finalized, for the kenosis to be um, a, a completed punctiliar act. All right. So um, if we accept that all three participles are the same, then there are just three different ways to communicate how it is that the invisible became visible, how it is the spiritual became physical, how it is that the, uh, you know, God the Son uh, was manifest in this physical world in a physical existence. Okay? And, uh, and we're clear. I mean, John 1.14, the Word became flesh. We get that. Colossians 2.9, um, during the, uh, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, during the days of his flesh, right? Um, in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. In bodily form. So he is incarnate. He is the Word incarnate. He has a body. He didn't have a body before. From the moment, uh, from any time prior to the, to the pregnant virgin, he did not have a body. But in him, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 5, 7, during the days of his flesh. Hebrews 10, 5, a body you have prepared for me. Okay, Which also speaks to the pre-existence of me. Uh, that was a me without a body, but then the Father gave him the body and he and God the Son entered into that body. Anyway, um, if if we take these all as simultaneous things, all referencing the incarnation, then uh, nothing in this text uh, would have reference to his pre-incarnate begotten humanity. And that's uh, taking it that way. Okay? So, um, is that clear? Are we clear on that? Reminding ourselves, of course, let's let's look at Proverbs 8 again. Some, uh, many of you weren't in the Proverbs class. 
Because in Proverbs 8, we have begetting terminology, we have conception terminology, we have birthing terminology, we have childhood terminology, we have a dynamic between the father and the son, and we have the boy that's playing and the father that's delighting in the boy that's playing. And this is, uh, it's, it's, it's marvelous to consider such a thing. And so uh, Proverbs 8.22, the Lord begat me or possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. The verb is kana. I don't think I stressed that on Wednesday or a week ago. I don't think I stressed that. Kana, when you think kana, think Cain and Abel, right? Because kana is the verb when Eve said, behold, I have acquired a man-child from the Lord. And so because she kanaed a man-child from the Lord, she named him Kana. She named him Cain, based upon the verb Kana. And that's what we see here, okay? And so Kana, I think, is a significant expression that uh, is, is legitimate to render as begat, okay? Now, there are other verbs for begat, like today I have begotten thee, uh, but this one is, is significant, Okay? So the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. If you want to ask yourself, when was God the Son begotten? He is the only begotten Son. He is the only begotten God. When did that beginning take place? Well, Proverbs 2 says, today. (laughs) All right, well, that answers that. Thou art my Son, today I have begotten thee. Well, what day was that today? And why was that today so significant? Because it was the first today ever. It's the alpha moment in the alpha to omega time frame of the, the dimension of time. And so uh, we see it here. The Lord possessed me, begat me, acquired me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. From everlasting I was established. From everlasting. So what we call eternity past, the, the ages before time, from everlasting, and then sp- crossing that boundary moment into time itself. From everlasting I was established. From the beginning, not just in the beginning, from the beginning. From the earliest times of the earth. And so from eternity past, past the alpha moment into the very earliest moments of of time. Here he is, begotten. Here he is, already begotten. When there were no depths, I was birthed. Yeled is the term, is a birthing term. I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Why is that significant? Well, because you go back and you read Genesis 1.1 and in the beginning uh, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and void and darkness, uh, the Spirit of God was brooding over what? The depths. The surface of the deep. And here in Proverbs 8 he says, guess what? Before there were any depths I was birthed. I was birthed. See, so there's a whole lot that Genesis does not define and we get elsewhere. We get in Proverbs 8, we get in Colossians 1, we get in Job 38, we get in uh, uh, Jeremiah uh, 4, we get in other places, okay, dealing with the, uh, the beginning. And so here's when he was birthed, when there were no depths. Uh, in verse 25, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was birthed. Okay, and uh, mountains there, by the way, I don't think are earthly mountains. I think they center in the angelic realm. The mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north where Satan was lusting after a particular throne. Wasn't entitled to that throne. But before those mountains were even in place, before there was a third heaven, before there was an invisible dimension for the heavenly host to populate, Jesus Christ was birthed in terms of being the hypostatic union, the God-man. Right? All right. So, is this clear? This is, this is before time. This is before man. This is before angels. This is before the universe and earth and everything else. It's not a Bethlehem manger. Okay? Bethlehem manger is, is when he got his body. That's when he became the Word incarnate, when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. All right. So, uh, taking, the, taking it this way, uh, making them all simultaneous, then the kenosis references the incarnation. However, 
perhaps it is possible we should not take these three participles as equivalent statements, but we should take these three phrases to communicate a progression of events. Maybe we need to model it that way. All right? How do we model it? Do we limit the kenosis to the incarnation? Or do we think the kenosis applies on a broader level? Do we think that the kenosis applies to the hypostatic union? Is it an act of Jesus Christ humbling himself to receive that begotten nature? I mean, after all, the Father didn't get a begotten nature. The Holy Spirit didn't get a begotten nature. It was just God the Son that accepted the begotten nature according to the Father's will. And so the Father sovereignly begets, and Jesus Christ takes hold. So if we're going to take these as successive statements, then step one would be for him to lay hold of that human nature. In which case, he actively takes morphe dulu. Actively taking morphe dulu would then reference God the Son's active acceptance of God the Father's begotten humanity. Okay? Which would put it before the foundation of the earth. I'm seeing a lot of puzzled faces this morning. This is terrible. You want to just quit and go eat, eat food? We've got a potluck today, right? All right. You following what I'm talking about? There's three participles. They might all be simultaneous, might all be the same thing, in which case all we're talking about is the virgin birth in the manger. That, that God the Son beca- that beca- received a body. Or... They're not all simultaneous. They are a progression, in which case there are then stages. And so the first stage would be active voice, he takes the, the morphe dulu. He takes the form of a servant. And in that case then, when the Father begets it, God the Son accepts it. God the Son, in his status as true deity, agrees with the will of the Father and accepts the morphe dulu. Even though he existed in the, in the Morphe Theu, he accepts the will of the Father and he accepts the Morphe Dulu. He says, I will be the God-man. And he accepts the human nature, which would be his human soul spirit. Okay? The human soul spirit. Doesn't get the body until the Bethlehem manger, but he accepts the human soul spirit before the found, at the alpha moment of time. Okay? Then secondly, being made, middle voice, in the likeness of man. And I've done two different things with this. But being made in the likeness of man would reference the incarnation at the Virgin Mary's conception. That separates those issues. That separates hypostatic union with incarnation. But here he's being made, becoming it's a middle voice, participle. In the homoia anthropone, in the likeness of men, humanity, men plural, mankind, humanity, right? And so now we have a pregnant virgin. Uh, virgin. Now, not only does he have the morphe dulu, now he has the homoioma, the likeness. And so we're following the steps. We're following the progression. Referencing the God-man's incarnation at the Virgin Mary's conception. And then finally, being found, visibly seen, observed, discovered. Being found in the schemati hos anthropos, in the form as a man. References the virgin-born life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This is what's now visible to all that watch him. And I think that too is in agreement with, with John 1.14. The word became flesh, dwelt among us, and then what? We beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten from the Father. So he did come, he was seen. And that's a big deal. Uh, it's a big deal in Hebrews as well. God, after he spoke to the fathers in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. The heir of all things. The uh, image, the radiance of the Father's glory. That's the visible one we can see. 
All right, so I'm laying it out before you. These are the two possible ways we might understand it. And um, there are days I just love uh, point four, and there are days I love point five. Okay? And uh, so, you know, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you my mind's made up on it or that I'm under a monster conviction one way or the other. Because the fact is, it, it all happened. It all happened, and he emptied himself. He cannot owed himself so that he could walk the walk that he walk and walked and took our place on the cross. Had he not humbled himself, he couldn't be exalted the way he was exalted. And that becomes significant as well. All right. Since I'm not doing Q&A on Wednesday nights, I should probably uh, ask if there's any questions here this morning. Does that make sense? Okay. So on the one side, all three mean the same thing. On the other side, no, they're different things in a sequence whereby once all three were completed, then the kana'o activity is, is done. All right, Doug's got a question. I'm going to take a question from Doug. Do we have a microphone? Doug, you can walk over there and take the microphone and then use it. Thank you, sir. I didn't do a Q&A last Wednesday, and I'm not going to do a Q&A this Wednesday. So just for a couple of weeks, we're taking the Q&A break. Uh, yes, sir. Okay, um, before he received his fleshly body, before he was born, uh-huh. was his soul and human spirit mono present in hev- you know as, as as the creation of everything? That is a marvelous question, I, and the answer I believe is yes, because I, I can't envision a soul spirit in an omnipresent um, capacity. Okay, and so the and so in, in that case then. The soul spirit would be monopresent, uh, and then, but then again, so in heaven, even though God the Son is still omnipresent, but on those occasions when uh, Jesus Christ came to the earth, like the burning bush, um, I think soul spirit was in the burning bush. I think when he was the pillar of fire, I think soul spirit was in the pillar of fire. I think anywhere that if if there was a Christophany, if there was an appearance of God the Son somewhere then the soul spirit was there also because he's one person. One person. Of course, deity is omnipresent everywhere. But uh, So that's my answer to that. Okay, isn't it amazing that everything was created through him? Yes. <laughs> through his humanity. All things were created through him. And keep in mind, all things were created through him and for him. And so when we say that God, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, was that Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? Well, the Father designed it, but the Son did it. Did it. The Son did it, right. Then in, in John 1 and Colossians 1, it's clear. God the Son is the, is the architect, the master workman, the carpenter that built this place. And so, but keep in mind, God the Son built this place, but he did it as the God-man, already in hypostatic union. His soul spirit was there uh, before he built the universe, right. Uh, okay, we'll give, we'll give a question over there to Bill also. This is good, because I want to make sure this is solid, because this doesn't get taught a lot. When it comes to um, when it comes to him being made in the likeness uh-huh. of man, you're saying that that was the uh, incarnation, mm-hmm. uh, but it also says that he was the firstborn among many brethren, mm-hmm. and I'm assuming that's the alpha moment when he received his humanity in, uh, there in Proverbs, as we see. So can we say that being made in the likeness of man is the physical body that he's receiving, or is it the um, when he received his humanity and not an incarnation? I prefer to think of it as the incarnation because the idea of making is different from the idea of begetting. And so the idea of making is the verb genomai, which agrees with John 1 that everything that has been made was made by him. And so uh, the, uh, and the middle voice there that he is doing the making, but also being made, receiving the, the making. So he's making himself, literally self-made, all right, as, uh, as God the Son uh, makes that. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, I think that's the best way to understand that. Because already the active voice of taking is, uh, is, is in the first part of Sepal, from the Alpha moment. And so, yeah, we have the alpha moment, we have the incarnation, we have both, hypostatic union, incarnation, and 
the public ministry, that he was seen, that he was beheld, right? And this is what Eliezer taught us in that mystery of godliness. Uh, beheld, be, believed on in the world, beheld by man, taken up in glory, that, uh, that he was beheld. And that's uh, that third participle being found, like Hirisco, right? You ever say Eureka? Or you ever visit Eureka, California? Anyway, Hirisco is that discovery and being found. So there's also heuristic things in uh, virus scanning and computer stuff that deals with discovery. So, All right. Well, thank you for those. Returning back to Philippians 2 then. And I will stop looking at my audience because the puzzled expressions just bug me. All right. I broke my rule this morning. I normally don't look at people. I just preach to the thermostat or the clock or the the Amen logo on the wall, things like that. Now, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Now here is a, when we get to verse 8, the real verse 8, when we get to the aorist uh, verb, he humbled himself. Now we got an additional issue to deal with. And I think they're related, clearly. I think the the uh, kenosis is a humble activity. I think uh, the kenosis itself was, was pretty humbling and humiliating. But the kenosis then, kanao leads to uh, tapino here. We have tapinao. We've got the humbling verb. And this is not the same as um, the, the kanao because this now talks about, well, okay, he did all of that to become humanity. Then what did he do with his humanity? He died, okay? He went to the cross, and he died, which is fundamentally the kind of the curse we're all under, has fallen man in Adam. We all die, in Adam all die. So what did he do? He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so this now becomes uh, an important point. So verse 8, he humbled himself, self-humbled, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there's really three things there. He humbled himself. The mechanism is by becoming obedient. And that obedience goes beyond where most of us would be obedient to. Obedient to the point of death. And then, not just any death. Not just any death. A lot of people die, and a lot of people die intentionally. And a lot of people die sacrificially. And a lot of people will lay down their life For a loved one, they'll lay down their life for their country. They'll lay down their life for something greater than themselves. Sacrificial, there's no greater love than one lays down his life for a friend. Humans can do that. But Jesus came to do what no one else could do, even death on a cross. And so the work that he did as the sacrificial work of atonement, no one else could do. And so we've got to talk about why, how unique that is. And so now we get... Uh, back to uh, another point here. Main point E. We had a lot of detail under D. We had a 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and then that 5 and an A, B, and C. But uh, anyway, now we're finally back up to the upper level in the outline where we're dealing with point E. The fifth of the subpoints under the Kenosis hymn provides a creedal affirmation of the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. All right, subpoint E then. Jesus Christ humbled himself. Jesus Christ humbled himself. Self-humbling is an active verb with a reflexive pronoun. So he's the one doing it. And we can't say that somebody was humbling him because he was humbling himself. A lot of times we get enforced humility where, you know, your father humbles you or somebody else humbles you, your boss humbles you because he promoted the other guy instead of you. And uh, so, you know, you've been humbled and somebody else did that to you. Okay? That's not this. This is an active voice. He himself is doing the humbling. And we're called upon to humble ourselves. In fact, we have a mandate, an imperative in the church age. You and I are expected to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you at the proper time. And if you've got a problem with that, um, well, we're going to deal with that. We're going to learn that this is uh, the basis for how we obey that imperative. 
Because I'm expected to humble myself. Well, why would I not humble myself? Look what he did. Jesus humbled himself. And why do I think he gets exalted? Well, look at this. He humbled himself, and for this reason also God highly exalted him. Oh, how about that? There's a connection between humbling yourself and God the Father exalting you. And you don't have to self-exalt. It doesn't say humble yourself, that way you'll feel better when you exalt yourself later. No. Humble yourself, He will exalt you in the proper time. In the right way, for the right reason, at the right time, not too soon. And thankfully, thankfully for all of us, it's going to happen at the Bema judgment seat of Christ when we're no longer sinners. <laughs> when we no longer have our sin nature. When we're absent from this body of death. Then when we're glorified in Christ, we're going to have the capacity to handle that kind of exaltation. If we got that kind of exaltation today, we'd be in trouble. We'd be prideful. We'd be full of ourselves. We'd be the next Satan, the next Solomon, the next, you know, whatever. It's, it's tough to deal with exaltation in, in this mortality. Self-humbling is an active verb with a reflexive pronoun. So the verb is tapenao. Tapenao. And, and back in verse 3, you'll remember, we, we looked at the, the noun tapenafrosune, which talked about being um, uh, humility of mind. Do nothing of selfishness or, or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than, than yourself. So we've already had, in this, in this chapter, we've already had uh, a related term to this verb because we've had the noun for humility. We've had this noun, humility of mind, humility of thinking. Uh, but this is now the verb that goes with that, the actual verb to humble. Uh, it'll be used later in Philippians where it's translated to get along with humble means. He says, I know how to be prosperous. I know how to be, uh, live in adversity. I know how to get along with humble means. And it is humbling when, when money is tight and when you're struggling. That's humbling. And Paul says, I've learned how to do that, right? Philippians uh, 4.12. This is when financial provision arrives and he's celebrating. Philippians 4.10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want. See, there's a difference between being poor and being in want. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. That's topping up. That's topping up. Oh, that's the same verb we have here. I know how to humble myself or be humbled financially. I also know how to live in prosperity. There's a secret to that too, if you're not careful. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. So the whole financial spectrum. And uh, Paul's got the perspective on that. And it's curious that the, on the poverty side of things, on the poor side of things, that he uses the same verb here for humbling. For humbling. So when, when we find ourselves in those kind of seasons, we uh, thank the Father for the humbling. And we learn the secret. And we embrace the contentment that he supplies. And so uh, that's the issue there. Uh, Tapenao is number 5053 in the Strong's Index. There are 14 uses. I forget, it has seven on the, on the noun. Uh, then there's also an adjective form, this tapenas. I didn't put it on the slide there, but uh, there, there are other forms. The whole word family is, is, is useful to, to take a look at. Um, Matthew 18. You might expect some of these are going to come from the Gospels because... Uh, Clearly, our, our Savior dealt with humility issues, not only in exemplifying them himself, but also in conflict with the uh, Pharisees. And the Pharisees were like the anti-humble. The, the, the Pharisees were not about humbling themselves. The Pharisees were about outdoing the next guy and uh, out-Phariseeing the, the next guy. Okay, And uh, Paul was the champion at that. He was the Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was the the, the pinnacle of, uh, of human exaltation. And so uh, some of these things then I think we can, uh, we can understand. So in Matthew 18, 
the disciples came to Jesus and said, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, why do they want to know that for? What motivates a question like that? You know, instead of just being humble about, you know, what must I do to be saved or why should I even be in the kingdom to begin with? I don't deserve that. Uh, not only clearly do I deserve to be there, but clearly I'm going to be in the, the top ten. You know, I'm going to be one of the one of the top, you know, pinnacle. You know, we'll let Jesus be number one, but then, you know, bronze and silver medals are still available, right? We can uh, We can try for two, three, and four and whatever else. Who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself. Said, here's my visual aid before PowerPoint. We've got, we've got the, this child. Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, become like children. And to me, that's, that's, to me that's kind of describing two different things. So you want to get saved and then in your salvation life, be humble. In your salvation life, be humble. Act like you don't deserve what he gave you because you don't. Be humble. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself as this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck to be drowned in the depth of the sea. And so uh, we have the emphasis on humility there. Okay. Anyway, this was one of the earliest sermons I ever preached. And I think other than a couple of people here, probably no one heard it. It was called childlike, not childish. Okay. Jesus doesn't want us to be childish, but he wants us to be childlike. And a uh, huge difference there in the, in the application. I think uh, sometimes people get confused and if they could just be childish, then they think they're obeying Scripture. Not the case. Matthew 23 and verse 12. And again, this is rebuke upon the Pharisees. In the whole chapter, really. But um, he spoke to the crowds, telling them the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Isn't it sad what the uh, pinnacle of religious leadership has come to. But there they are. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe. And that's remarkable too. you got some spiritual leaders and they, they're a train wreck. But they are your spiritual leaders. And so we should be in subjection, at least to doctrine if it's biblical. But don't imitate them because they're a bunch of hypocrites. <laughs> okay? So uh, don't do according to their deeds, or they say things and do not do them. So be discerning. Listen to the doctrine, be a Berean, check the scripture, see if it's so. But when you see their hypocritical lifestyle, run. Okay? Don't, don't copy that. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here they are, and they've got different standards for the little people versus you know what they expect the, the crowd to do versus what they themselves are willing to do. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. It's all a show to them, for they broaden their phylacteries, lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the chief, the places of honor at banquets, the chief seats in the synagogues. Today we would say the designated parking spots with the fancy signs and the whatever else. Um... Respectful greetings in the marketplaces of being called rabbi by a man. Just getting that title, eat that up, ooh. Yeah. But don't be called rabbi, for one is your teacher and you're all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father. Curious to me how Roman Catholicism gets around that, but they do. Don't call anyone father, for one is your father who is in heaven. Anyway, um, the greatest among you shall be your servant. How about that? The greatest among you shall be your servant. And then, of course, he's going to illustrate this. Uh, uh, probably, I think it's the same very night or the next night. He goes up to, this is either Wednesday. Yeah, this is Wednesday or Tuesday of the Passion Week. Anyway, upper room, the night in which he's betrayed, he, he washes their feet. He illustrates for them how the greatest of them is going to be their servant. So he gives them the doctrine, then he illustrates it. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. 
Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. That's our pattern. That's our doctrine. And this is what he did in the kenosis, in the activity. He took the form of a servant and humbled himself. All right. And then a bunch of woes that get pronounced after that. Philippians 2.8, Philippians 4.12, those are our texts we're studying. How about uh, James 4.10 and 1 Peter 5.6? These are the applications for us that come on the basis of what we've just been looking at. You know, when we deal with uh, the Christian way of life and uh, the first three verses there, we want to have an appropriate prayer life. Uh, We want to make sure that we're not compromising in our Christian walk or he'll call us adulteresses in verse 4. Remember the problem with Israel in the Old Testament, they were constantly playing the harlot. They were constantly uh, adulteresses, committing adultery against Yahweh in the Old Testament. We could do the same thing in the church age. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? And that if we walk a Christian walk that's more worldly than biblical, what are we doing? Well, we're committing spiritual harlotry. We're adulteresses as the bride of Christ. So whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. (laughs) We used to be enemies. He redeemed us so that now we're friends. And now we're going to do something in in arrogance that's going to put us back in an adversarial footing. Why would we do that? Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? Is the Bible written for no reason at all? that he jealously desires the spirit which is made to dwell in us. The walk that he's designed us for, the provision that he's given us, how can we be a redeemed people and then fail to enter into the rest that he's supplied? How unthinkable, okay? Just a teaser for next hour. This is what we're dealing with in, in Hebrews 3. Failing to enter into rest by the unbelief of the believer. But he gives a greater grace. How about that? He gives a greater grace. Wow, I thought the grace that saved me was pretty great. What's the greater grace? What's the grace that sustains me? What's the grace I walk in? What's the grace I operate in in experiential sanctification? So he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is supposed to be my experiential walk. And it's marvelous, it's powerful, it's amazing Uh, I think Newton was right when he picked out amazing for his adjective there, an amazing grace. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. We got these these principles here for how do we endure in the angelic conflict? What do we do when we're under attack? Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Now I have an intimacy in my prayer life. Keep short accounts, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We want to have all these uh, things engaged. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. That doesn't sound fun. But notice, if you think the Christian walk is just a monster party, think again. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. That's the the application. Likewise, um, and there's others too. Do not speak against one another, brethren, and so forth. We've got to be, we've got to have the same grace that we walk in. We've got to extend that same grace to others because they're, they're growing up like we're growing up, and we all should be loving one another. 1 Peter 5 and verse 6. Likewise, it's uh, you younger men, likewise, verse 5, be subject to your elders, all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. That's topping off Rasune. That's the noun we were looking at uh, when we were in connection with verse 3. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Tapenos, adjective. Therefore, tapenao, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So, um, again, the consequence, he will exalt you at the proper time. Um, so now the question is going to arise, well, how do I humble myself? Okay, Because there's a pseudo-humility out there that is not true humbling of yourself. How do I humble myself? How do I be miserable and weep and mourn, biblically speaking, in a sanctified way, in a manner that uh, fulfills the 
the idea. I said, too much human self-humbling is phony. That's the Pharisee approach. It's really a pride application. You know, you're boasting at how humble you are. Let me let me tell you how humble I am. And you know, and and so yeah, you broaden your phylacteries and you you give these long flowing prayers and and you make a big deal out of the money you're pouring into the offering plate and uh, and all the rest. That's uh, that's that's the antithesis of true humility. And yet the person that's so insane that's pursuing that, what does he think? Oh, he's serving God. He's humble. He's more humble than the next guy. He's the best. You know, he's fasting. He's weeping. He's praying. All this stuff. God says, rend your heart, not your garments. This is just an external show, and God says he's not impressed. <laughs> okay? So humble yourself. It's a reflex, it's an active voice. I have to do it, but it's a reflexive pronoun. I'm doing it to myself. I'm humbling myself. How do I humble myself? Well, how did, how did Jesus humble himself? All right. Well, here's a clue. He became obedient. Aorist participle again of Genemai. How many of these aorist participles of Genemai are we going to come to? <laughs> okay. Becoming, 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 becoming. You say, well, I already am obedient. Become more obedient. Okay. Jesus was already obedient. He became more obedient. Becoming obedient to the point of death. Becoming obedient to the point of death. This is um, the mechanism that describes how he humbled himself. Becoming obedient to the point of death. Every obedience application is a humility test. Right? Every obedience application is a humility test. Because you have the command, you've got the occasion, you've got a volitional moment where you're going to stop and say, wait a minute, not my will but thine be done, or you're going to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm sick of this, no more. You're going to, it's a humility test to say, I've obeyed long enough, I'm, I'm sick of it, I'm done. I'm going to do what I want to do from now on. Haven't I done enough? And so an obedient person can become disobedient like that. In short order. And so where do you draw the line in the sand? When do you stop obeying? When do you say, that's enough obedience? <laughs> well, thankfully, Jesus never drew that line in the sand. He didn't say, that's enough obedience. Not at any step along the way. Not at the, uh, the uh, hypostatic union begetting. Not at the incarnation. Not at the virgin birth. Not at the baptism, not at the testing in the wilderness, not anywhere in his earthly ministry. Not at the uh, arrest and the trials. Not in the scourging. Nowhere did he draw the line. Not at, not at Gethsemane. When he could have. When he thought about it. He honestly wanted his disciples praying for him. He said, the, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So I want you guys praying with me. And they kept falling asleep. And he had to finally, the, the greatest victory he ever had is when he said, if it's possible, let this cup pass by me, but nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You know when he said that? When he said, not as I will, what was, what was that admitting? Yeah, he was admitting he didn't want to do this. He was admitting that his, if he had his druthers, his desire, his humanity did not want to die on the cross, did not want to suffer that spiritual separation. And that's what spiritual death is, that disconnect. Becoming obedient to the point of spiritual death separation from God the Father. Something he never had his entire life. And he was born saved. He was born uh, sinless and perfect and, and in fellowship with the Father. And for the first time ever, for three hours of darkness, he was separated from the Father. He had no fellowship with his Father. Because what concord is there between light and darkness? What fellowship hath Christ in Belial? And so uh, it's, a, it's a participle of genomai plus the adjective of obedient. And this is, uh, this is a fun way. Greek has some, it's called periphrastic uh, expressions. A periphrastic expression is just a roundabout way of saying something. And we have the same thing in English. We have roundabout ways of saying something that put more words in there than is truly necessary. But because we packed more words in there than is truly necessary, we're making a point for some reason. 
Okay? We do it in English. They did it in Greek all the time. And that's what we have here. We don't have... See, we have the, the, the participle for becoming, and then we have an adjective for uh, obedient. We don't have a verb for obey. You understand the difference? So it doesn't say he humbled himself and he obeyed God. He humbled himself and he obeyed what was expected of him, or he obeyed God. No, he became obedient. See, it's like, well, I, uh, I listened to a Bible class, or I became a disciple. Understand the difference? Maybe, you know, if it's something I did once, if it's a verb of something I did, or versus a state of being, I became this. Because something you do, well, how many times are you going to do that? Are you going to keep doing that? All right, you did it once, I'm impressed, do it again. You did it, okay, do it again. You know, what you do, maybe you have a, a string of, yeah, you're doing some great stuff for a while, but then you fall away, apostasy, you start doing other stuff. So being is greater than doing, ultimately, right? So he became obedient. He became obedient. And that's what we have here. And so it's the participle of genomai to become, plus it's the adjective of hupekaos, um, obedient. And, uh, and we know what obedient is, but it's only three times that it's used. The verb to obey is used a whole lot more, hupakuo. But hupakuo is, is I hear, I listen, I obey. I am under the authority of what I've heard. And so because I've heard it, I'm accountable, I'm obedient, I'm going to do what I was told. That's obey. And uh, obedient, just uh, real quickly here, Acts 7.39. I didn't include any of the verbs uh, for obe- to obey, but just the noun here for, uh, or the adjective here for obedient. The, uh, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. See, now God didn't let them. The overruling will of God kept them from going back to Egypt. They wanted to fire Moses and appoint a new leader and go back to Egypt. And so, fundamentally, they did it, right? When you sin in your heart, it's as if you did it. Jesus said, you lust after a woman in your heart, you did it in your heart. They went back to Egypt in their heart, even though their bodies were prevented from doing so. Anyway, what does it take to obey? Willingness. They were unwilling to obey. Obedience is a choice. God told you to do something? No, choose you this day. You going to do what he told you? You can do what you want to do. Obedience is a choice. We are a volitional moral realm of existence. So, that's Acts 7.39. 2 Corinthians 2.9, the other use. There's only three. For to, uh, to this end also I wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. And we're talking about the, the man of incest, that he first of all had to be removed and then he had to be restored. And um, the Corinthians were not obedient. They were not willing to take him back. And that's why he's writing a third letter now to them in uh, 2 Corinthians. So the difference between obeying and becoming obedient. Okay? And that's, uh, that's uh, kind of the nature of the, the paraphrastic Greek construction. It's like we have in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Not just that you were saved. Not just by grace God saved you. By grace, you are presently now saved ones. By grace, you are saved ones. Not just that he saved you. You are now saved ones. It's a, ver- it's a participle with, a, with a, uh, an adjective. We are presently being saved ones. Anyway, thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for your truth. Bless our, continue to bless our time in your word today. 
Thank you for uh, opening the eyes of our understanding and, and settle our thinking on certain matters. And if there are things that are still pending, uh, making up uh, our minds and our thinking, well then, Father, we call upon you to, uh, to lead us into the paths of righteousness for your name's sake and bring us to a point of conviction in, uh, in different passages uh, as far as what they mean and the, uh, the full significance of them in every detail. So thank you for being faithful, Father. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen.